Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being taken recorded. My name is Paul Leary and this is XJob Downloaded. And today I'm going to interview Jenny Donaldson. Now, Jenny is a former member of the Metropolitan Police. She joined in 1983 and now she is a an assessor. Is that the right term? Um, yes, yes, it uh, is a, that is the right term. Or associate assessor. It depends on, you know, um, which direction you want to come from. Well, we'll, we'll come to that bit at the end because I like to do it in a chronological order. So... What is Jenny all about? Where is she from? What's her background? Right, okay. Well, like I say, my story begins in Essex, Ilford, Essex. Well, I was born in Romford. Born in Romford, <laughs> um, brought up in Ilford, and I currently live in Chinkford. So as long as it got, it's got a Ford in it, I'll you're, be there. That's there. how it appears. And so my parents um, were both from the Windrush generation. Um, my mum came over to the UK from Guyana, which was then British Guyana. Yep. Um, well, Guyana, I should say. And um, my dad was from St. Vincent, and they met in the UK. Um, and, yep, they met, had me. Then they got married, did it sort of backwards in my head at that time. Nothing wrong with that? No, nothing at all. And uh, my father was lucky enough to win the pools, and we bought... They bought their first house in Ilford. How brilliant. I know. You won the pools. <laughs> Little <laughs> Woods pools. I remember those with my dad every Saturday, sort of filling it out and then sort of put, put it in the, in the letterbox. How yeah. cool. Yeah. So, um, so I was brought up in Ilford. My mum had two previous daughters in Guyana um, before she came to the country, so she spent years trying to um, bring them over. Um, they were staying with sort of family members there. And at the age of seven, suddenly I had an older sister and a younger sister. So I spent the first seven years of my life as an only child. And then suddenly I was the middle child. Wow. And a couple of, yeah, and that was, that was quite difficult for me, really. And uh, a couple of years later, my other sister came over. So then I was the third child of four. Wow. It must have been difficult because that's the... Um... You've gone from being the only one to part of everyone. Mm. Oh, definitely. Yeah, so the relationship with my oldest sister and myself wasn't great because I think she thought I was spoilt. And I probably, in in her eyes, yes, because, you know, I, I had everything that, you know, my parents just sort of give to me. And she had a harder life being in Guyana. So, uh, and I resented that and she sort of like resented me for a bit. So we've always had... A, I think she would agree. We've always had a, a complicated relationship, but um, yeah, and, and that's you know, there's always one person in the family that you're going to have a little bit of angst with. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, what was the inspiration for you to join the Metropolitan Police? Right. Well, it didn't come easy when I when I left school. I didn't really know what to do. I stayed on in the sixth form. Um, I didn't go to university. 
it, it really wasn't in the cars. I think it was the whole the whole of the education process at that time, actually. So I fell into secretarial work. My older sister worked for the Caribbean Times, um, which was um, a black newspaper. And uh, I would say, you know, they're very critical of the police. And before I'd actually left sixth form, I popped round to see my sister at work. And uh, during that visit, I was offered a job by the um, the editor. So I was uh, the PA to the editor of the Caribbean Times. Wow. So I stayed about six months. It's, I think the title was bigger than the actual than the actual pay. I mean, yeah. I had a lot of responsibility <laughs> for my age. Um, the, the pay was really poor, but it was a great experience. And I did meet quite a few um, sort of like black activists at that time. Um, it's only now as I'm older that I, I think I really appreciate the people that were in and out of there. Um, I stayed there for six months and I did two other secretarial roles. And it was during my second secretarial job that I was actually made redundant. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, what am I going to do? And I was having a conversation with a, a friend on the telephone. Um, and we were just brainstorming jobs. I said, I think I need a career. I want to do a job that I'm not going to be made redundant. And we were going for I was even considering the army. I really didn't know what I was going to do. And he then suddenly in the conversation suggested, what about the police? And I remember pausing and I thought, oh my gosh, I had even never thought about the police. And I thought, you know what, I might have a look at that. And it was, it was just during that conversation I'd made, oh, I'm going to have a look. So I came off the phone and I went into my mum who was in the kitchen. I said, mum, what do you think about the police force? And she just looked at me and she said, well, yeah, why don't you just try it? And that that same morning I went to, um, we're in, the, in our living room, got the yellow pages, which we had then, obviously we was pre, well before mobiles. And uh, I found the number for looks at police. And then I thought, oh, New Scotland Yard, got the number, I called them up. And I spoke to this um, young lady on the telephone and she said, are you free this afternoon? And I said, yes. And just by chance, a friend of mine had popped around um, and I said, well, I'm going to go to Scotland Yard. You're going to come with me. So we went in the afternoon and we sat down, spent a couple of hours watching sort of films. Um, her name was Kim, Kim Bryan. I'll never forget her name. And um, yeah, that, that was the beginning. She was lovely. And then she did. She was really honest with me. She said, look, you know, we we're really struggling to to, you know, encourage black people to join especially black women and um, she told me she gave me the application form and told me to spend the week on the application form she said write it out in pencil spend the week and then send it directly to her um, she even just tried to persuade my friend to join my friend said oh no no she said I'm only here you know with my friend and um, it would have been great actually if she joined but no that wasn't that wasn't her dream and that's where it began for me. And I think it was during the process of waiting, going for each stage, that's when I really thought about, is this something that I want to do? I mean, the whole process for me took six months. Wow. So that was really, really quick. Um, so obviously, you know, got through the paper sift bit, 
then I had, um, which did I have first? I had the fitness test. So, which was, I, I, I knew that I was going to pass the fitness test because I had a quite, you know, a good level of fitness. I used to play netball and, um, and I was always particularly good at sports. And so the fitness test was fine. The interview I found more challenging. Um, that, that day, it was, yeah, my, my head was totally blown. I really thought I'd blown the interview as well because of, you know, one of the particular questions. Um, but there was one PC that was chaperoning each of the people, each of the each of the skills who were waiting. And um, as I was sitting there waiting really nervously, he said, um, he was asking me questions, trying to make me feel nice and calm. And he said, do you know who the commissioner is? And I remember thinking, I know it, but it, it totally gone. All the information had dropped out of my head. And he said, remember this. It's the new man because it was it was new in post. It's, you know, Kenneth, the new man, new man. I thought, oh, gosh. I, so I remembered that. And I remember he'd been really nice and kind to me. And, you know, I went to, into my interview. They didn't ask me that question, but I was ready for it. And there was one particular question that was posed to me that I thought I've done it now. And the question was, I mean, I had a panel of three people. I can't remember what ranks they were. Um, I was that nervous, even though I knew the rank system because I had done my research by going in the library and going to police stations and speaking to police officers. Um, no internet to do research, so I did all that myself. But the question was posed to me was, so you work for the Caribbean Times, what's going to stop you from um, if you have a bad day in policing, going to your old employers and giving a bad report. And I remember looking at um, this woman <laughs> and I said, well, I'm sure you have bad days and each time you have a bad day, you don't go to your local newspaper and give a bad report. Good <laughs> I mean, that was just, it was just, this, you know, the, the only thing I can think of in my head. And as I said it, I remember as the words left my mouth, I thought, oh my gosh, I've done it now. But it worked. And it the, helped. And this is 1982 and you joined in 83 or? That was 1983. 1983. And, I, and actually it was a <clears> for <throat> 83. And of course, so, this is two years after the Brixton riots. Yes. So the, the world of policing sort of started to change around that time. What was that like for you as you, you've done your probationary training? How many, how many black people were in your intake? Oh my word, actually, it was quite it was quite a lot. I was apparently. It? apparently. Um I, I go back because the day when I started, my mum took me to training school. She came with me. And as we got to the gates, she said to me, Don't let them run you. That was that was her that was her words, her parting words as I walked through the gates. And as I was walking along, um, just past the statue, this guy was walking towards me, and I thought he was an inspector. I learned after that he was a warden because he had a flat cap on. And, and I did think to myself, he probably was a little bit shorter than I would have thought because there was a height, um, obviously, yeah. restrictions then. Um, but as he walked past me, I remember saying morning, uh, and he didn't reply to morning, but he said, God, there's loads of them. And, and I turned back because I thought, is he talking to me? And then there was nobody behind me. 
And I thought, oh, he's talking to me. But I didn't really understand what he was saying. It was only when I went into um, into the main building and went into the hall where all the new recruits for my intake were, that then I realised what he was referring to. There was another black female officer. Um, there was a, um, a black male who was Chris, later became my husband. And, um, and there was a, another girl who was from mixed heritage. So, fine enough, in my class, because we had only had one white female, so it was about 36 of us. And uh, so the white female was the minority when it came to the females, fine enough. Right. And I suppose that's, I don't know if it ever happened before. Um, so the fact that we had three people who were from sort of, you know, a diverse background, that was loads, apparently, to him. Wow. So, yeah. Um, but most classes that I saw had sort of maybe one intake want one black person so we we were actually you know you know we had quite a few compared to everyone else where did you go to from your training i went to vine street vine street yeah i went to vine street yeah um but before going to vine street i mean my my parents were very supportive my dad was nervous but whilst i was at training school it was um we, I stayed on this particular weekend, it was in December, and I stayed over the weekend because we were going to have our final exam on the Monday. And I was furiously studying in my room and I decided I was going to have a break. So I went over to the canteen and as I've gone into the canteen, um, all I can see is everybody in the canteen was transfixed to the TV. And as I've gone over, to see what they were staring at. That's when I realised it was the, the Harrods bombing. Oh. Where six people had been um, killed, three of them police officers, one a female police officer. Yeah. And um, I remember thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, is this what I'm, you know, is, this is what I'm joining. And I remember calling my dad, calling home later on, and my dad, oh, my gosh, he was, you know, telling me to leave. You've got to leave. Uh, he was just worried about me. And I remember saying, well, no, I'd, I'd worked so hard to get to that stage. I didn't find training school that easy, actually. And I'd worked so hard and I wasn't going to leave. But from that day on, things changed at training school even because uh, we then had to have security patrols. So each intake after you took the exam had to stay on to do security patrols at the training school because obviously of you know the high risk. Um, and later on that week, I found out that I was going to the West End, going to Mine Street, part and half of it. Wow. So, yeah. And uh, yes, yeah, so, so that was the experience. Was it Jane? But, Jane or Jane or Jane Offnot? Yeah. 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 And there was a sergeant and um, a PC. Yeah, I wasn't, I don't have a name, just sort of stuck into my, yeah. my, she was a little bit older than me. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, you know, how, how awful and how tragic. Uh, so going to Vine Street, my very first day at Vine Street, um, I didn't feel, it wasn't a great day, not for me anyway, because we were all taken, it was six of us that went to, um, to the West End, went to C District as it was then. Um, and we all got picked up and we got taken to see our borough commander, who's quite notorious, actually. 
and he had us lined up in front of him. And I was last in the line and Russell stood sort of like to attention in his office. And he started off with one of the officers in my team on the move. I remember one of the guys, he was, he was the first one, his name was Tim. And uh, he'd obviously gone through all our reports. And he started off by saying to Tim, oh, um, I see your, I see your parents are social workers. I effing hate social workers. Oh. And that's how he started. Then, and then it, it just started disparating us, really. And then he looked at Tim and he says, do you masturbate? No! And at that point, I remember Chris went first out, <laughs> sort of like, started composing himself. I felt my knees starting to buckle a little bit, thinking, oh my God, oh, what I would just ask me that question. And, uh, and Tim stood up there and he said, yes, sir. And then uh, he said, well, good, good, you know, because that's what I expect to hear. And then he just went through all of us and just basically just ripped us apart. That's just how I felt. And then he came to me and then he got us to read, he had this plaque on the wall and he got us to read this plaque. And it was in old sort of like English sort of thing, oldie worldy. And I was so nervous and I, I couldn't even read it. I was trying to read it. And he said to me, oh, shut up, sit down, you silly woman. I just remember thinking it was all about humiliation. Yeah. And he said to me that there was another black or female officer on the borough. And he said, are you going to be good or are you going to be rubbish? And I said, I'm going to be good. And it was, it was I just remember thinking, I don't like you. I made up my mind. I didn't like him. Uh, I let him learn that. Women weren't allowed on the area cars because he didn't see the point of us being on there. No. We weren't allowed on area cars on um, at Vine Street, well, on our borough, because there was no, we were just useless. There's no point for us to be there. He had this, this silly thing um, on Albemarle Street where um, each probationer, each morning between, I think it was seven and eight, when we were on an early term, we had to make sure that the road was clear so that when his princess, um, when his vehicle was being driven through, that it didn't stop, it didn't pause or didn't deviate. He had to drive through. So I remember doing my patrol and I was running around because I could see the car coming in the distance and there were taxis pulling over and I would be screaming at these cars to move out the way because he would, he would bollock you in the streets. You know, unbelievable. Kind of no, of... yeah, unbelievable. And, and yeah. you've you've gone in there, and what was that like as a, a a black female going into Vine Street Police Station? You're in the you're in the tourist centre. You're right in the middle of of London. What what was that like for you? Um, yeah, I think it was very much a curiosity to lots of members of the public. And people constantly stop and stare. Um, I must be in thousands and thousands of people's photo albums. The amount of times people stopped and you know took photographs of me. Um, I'm also in a, um, a sex magazine actually, where um, somebody was asking me a question, but it was a ruse to take a photograph of the back of me, and then there was a woman posing, um, no. you know, naked behind me. And, yeah, an officer showed me that later on, and I thought, oh, my God. They did it to traffic warden as well. But, um, yeah, it was 
on my team, I felt my team um, mostly sort of protected me. Um, it was other people around me that weren't so much. I mean, my, my street street duties. Um, there was an occasion where they were short, so my sergeant then um, posted me with an officer who's quite a lot of experience um, to go walking with him. And it was quite clear to me that this officer didn't like, I couldn't tell if it didn't like the fact that I was a black female or I was a female or I was a probationer or all of it, because probationers, people didn't want to walk with probationers. If you're a female, you weren't worth anything, and most certainly if you're black. And um, I think this was this particular day was the longest shift of my career. So it was the longest day because he didn't talk to me. He didn't look at me. We did nothing. Um, it was absolutely awful. I followed him round like a puppy. We did nothing. And then when we got back, um, I, I remember suddenly I realised, oh, we're heading back towards the station. And he he sat down. I went to sit next to him. He got up and sat somewhere else. Um, yeah, it, it was such a horrible experience. And then after he's had his meal, he got up, picked up his coat, picked up his helmet, walked off. And I realised, oh, we're going back out again. And then I followed him, you know. I mean, I don't know how someone can even do that. No. Not even to not even to look in my direction. And I remember at the end of that shift, I spoke to my street duty sergeant and I said, please, can I not be posted with him again? I said, we did nothing. He didn't talk to me, he didn't look at me. And, you know, my street duty sergeant sort of like, listen, but nothing happened to him. He wasn't spoken to. Um, and, and that's where it sort of like carried on. And, and there was a time when people would refer to, um, you know, you'd hear the N word quite a bit. Um, or people would say things like, uh, or use a C word, um, and and um, or people would say, well, present company accepted. And I remember when I was like continuation training, and it was all also new, you know, all new officers from different boroughs. So we have an extra, uh, you know, a monthly continuation training in the sergeant was giving us a scenario. So he said, so you're walking down the road and a coonmobile drives no. past you. And I remember just thinking, oh my God. And I looked down because I really didn't know how to react. And I felt all the other officers, they were embarrassed and they looked at me and they didn't know what to say. And then I was furious. I was so angry. I couldn't even look at the sergeant. And then the sergeant's um, response to me was, well, if you can't take it here, love, how are you going to take it out in the street? So, yeah, so he thought, what, well, how he tried to gauge it was that he was preparing me for the streets. I could never understand that it was such, it was a hard job anyway for police. And I couldn't understand how my colleagues who were doing the same job could speak and treat me like that way. But then we had the other thing, uh, um, you know, about being a woman anyway. Um, I mean, one of the colleagues on my team, he mentioned it and I'd heard about it, about female officers being stamped on the bottom. I'd, I'd never seen it, but I'd heard about it. And one officer on my team, sadly, he's passed away now. Um, 
he said, oh, Jenny, do you know, have you heard about um, female officers getting stamped on the bottom? And I remember being really quick and I said, well, there's no point because he won't show. And if I know, that was it. It was never, um, you know, the question was never put to me again. Thankfully, he accepted it because it was never going to happen. Sorry, somebody was going to get assaulted if, if that was going to take place. And I, I personally don't know if anybody has had it done, but I know it's been talked about. And one of my other colleagues, she said no. She said she said it never happened to her, um, not if they wanted to live. That was I remember her, her response. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. yeah I, <laughs> I've heard I've heard of that as an initiation, but I've never actually met anybody who's who went through it. I think it's probably um, folklore that never took place, but nevertheless, it was something that was considered. Yeah, yeah. When you're you're in the community, you're in a West Indian community. You, are you still living at home at this time, or are you um, in a was, section house? I was still, yeah, I was still living at home at that time. Um, but then I did move into a section house. I did have um, um, my parents are split up, and we did have a few. Um, I didn't get with my stepfather, so I then went into. Yeah, he was very anti-police, actually. My, my stepdad was very, very anti-police. Um, um, anti-police, anti-white, anti-everything, actually. Anti-Asian, I think anti-women. <laughs> yeah, so um, for, you know, for me, for my safety, it was best for me to actually go into the section. So I went into Trenchard. And uh, within, I remember within a couple of, I don't know, within about a couple of weeks, I contracted chickenpox. I was going around <laughs> Trenchard. I never had chickenpox as a child. Right. I was back home and I got kicked out. <laughs> as soon as I, I remember speaking to an officer said, oh, I've just got back, I've, I've had chickenpox. And I said, oh, don't talk to me because no, it's not contagious. And I said, oh, well, okay. Um, but it was going through the section house, like, well, wow. So... Then I was back home for a couple of weeks. How, how were you welcomed into the West Indian community as you know, as a black female police officer? What was mm. that? What was that like for you? I found the older generation were fantastic. I mean, they were like, oh my gosh, um, and people would be talking to me all the time and asking me about it. And a lot of tourists, a lot of American tourists, would always stop me. You know, black and white, and they'd always say, oh, is it safe? I found young black men were very anti, very, very anti. Um, but I made it my mission that when somebody, because there was one particular time I was actually walking through uh, Mayfair and there was a club there and there was a group of um, young black men. And as soon as they saw me, they started shouting, you know, sell out, um, oh, coconut, all kinds of stuff they're calling me. So I thought, no, I'm not having it. I went straight over, right in the middle. I said to them, so why are you calling me them names? Do you know me? And I think they were a bit startled that I was I was just so upfront. And then we had a really, really in-depth conversation. Um, and, and I said, look, if we were in a club, you probably asked me to dance. And I remember saying that. I was really quite feisty. And uh, so I told them the reason why I joined. I said, look, you know, there's obviously a lot of issues, but if we don't have, as you know, people like us joining, you know, it's no point being on the outside and complaining. And you know what? By the end of this conversation, they were shaking their hands, shaking my hands and everything. And I remember there was a taxi driver, there was a cab driver, a black cab driver, that every time 
he, every time he was, he did many nights and every time I was night duty, he'd always seem to look out for me. And I remember I heard over the radio, you know, they were calling me up. I was, my number was 804, 804, 804, you know, can you speak? And I, you know, I said, yeah, I can speak. And they asked me if I was okay because he'd reported. Oh. The other that I think Jenny might be in a bit of trouble. And, uh, and I said, no, I'm fine. But another time when I was walking down another park, um, I saw these other, you know, the two um, black lads and they initially started giving me trouble. And then again, I started having a conversation and then we had a, such a laugh after. And as we were ending up our conversation, a car drove past and they started shouting out abuse at me. And then both of these guys started defending me because, you know, and I said, no, nah, that's not right. Leave her alone. And uh, because they just didn't understand, I think. I think when they realised, when they spoke to me, me as a person, I think I knew why I had joined. I didn't join to, you know, to, you know, stamp, be stamping on the necks of my, 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 you know, of black people. I joined really to try to make a difference. And and I think they could actually relate to that. And I didn't have any ears and graces or anything like that. I, I spoke to them on, 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 you know, on the level. They can see that I was, a, you know, a young person. I'm not going to say I, I didn't. I did miss going out with my friends. I, I, you know, whereas my friends were going out and, and clubbing and partying, there were times when I think when I'm on a night duty, walking, you know, and it's freezing cold. I think, oh God, you know, and all my mates are out. But I knew the reason why I was doing that job. You know, I didn't like. I really didn't like having abuse from colleagues. No. Um, about my um, about my colour or my or my gender, because if I was to balance up, you know what was worse. What, what then? Because after a while, because people were openly racist, but then they realised that they couldn't be racist, and that, and that sort of dissipated. But it didn't stop the attitudes. Um, but the sexism was. Like nothing I'd experienced. Overwhelming. Absolutely. But it was a, it was a different time. I mean, I, I hope to God that we've learned. I hope to God that they've learned around the, you know, the, I get you know the the big thing about misogyny, but I hope to God they've learned about the sexism element because it was rife. I mean, we used to have it. We used to the police used to have a stocking allowance, didn't they? The girls used to get yeah, a stocking yeah, allowance. Yeah. You know, um, there were all those things that that went with it. But I think people changed. It's generational as well. I'd like to think that, that people have changed, but I don't know because I'm not yeah, in there Yeah, I'd anymore. like to think. I mean, talking about stocking allowance, um, at Lambeth, because Lambeth, they had, um, we had the lab there. So every so often, if you'd had like a drug seizure, um, you'd have to take your form, take the drugs up yourself and take it with the um, with the forms in triplicate when mm. you have your... Um, your carbon paper, I was carrying my own carbon because I could never find any at the station, you know, typewriters. When I think about it, it was, it was, it just seems like a different age. It really does. Yeah. We'd have to take it up to the lab and on the wall, they will have a fine system. And, and it was all sort of monetized and they have all the different things if you'd missed off, if you'd made a mistake, there's five pence for this, five pence for that. And at the bottom of the list, it said, if you're a woman, if you showed them that you were wearing the kit, then you would be exempt. No. 
Yeah. Yes. Because I remember going there and then sent, taking my form up because I knew about it because I'd been there several times because I was quite active as um you know as, as a police officer and um and I always made sure that my film was perfect and I remember one officer saying to me I mean the thing is they had sergeants inspectors all behind there so it was sanctioned they knew it it was you know it, it was it wasn't hiding it was there yeah it was the thing and I remember this officer saying to me he said, um, got any mistakes? I said, nope, no mistakes at all. He said, well, it doesn't matter, love. He said that because, you know, you know, you've got an exemption. I said, I don't need it. I didn't need it. And uh, I would always make sure it was totally perfect. But what, what I don't know, because women were, we were allowed to wear trousers between certain times, a certain date in October to March. Yeah. We were issued trousers. Um, and I remember there was, um, there was a, um, what was it? Yeah, it was a film premiere in Leicester Square and we all had to parade at Bow Street Police Station. And I was going to wear my trousers because it was really freezing. It was, it was December, it was really cold. But for some reason, I, I did put my skirt on and I had, I remember two pairs of all these types. I mean, I could hardly move with my handbag and my silly little truncheon that went into the handbag, which I never used. Because every time we took it out, you can hear all the guys making silly childish comments noises. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um uh so I was there with my skirt and there was a couple of officers, and those three female officers chose to wear their trousers, which they were entitled to do. And uh I remember this chief inspector came in, he looked at everybody there and looked at all the women and said all you women wearing trousers, go back to your stations and put in, put your skirts on, just because you preferred them. And I think that is so... So I was constantly going around and, you know, I felt like my eyes were probably rolled in the back of my head most times, you know, because... And these were coming from senior officers, so you couldn't say anything. No. No, because if you did, no-one would take it seriously anyway. No, 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 absolutely. It's like, oh, you know, it's like, get over yourself. And then you couldn't say anything to do with race because you would be deemed to, that you had the chip on your shoulder. Were you in the district when um, the murder took place in St James's Square? Yes, I was. Yes, um, I remember that day specifically because I was on street duties because that was April of um, 84. Yeah. I was on part of my continuation training and... So I was at um, Paddington Police Station. We were in the control room. So we'll be showing around the control room because obviously that was the, uh, the high security station. And um, whilst we're there, I can hear a lot of commotion on the radio, a lot of commotion on the radio. And, you know, people sort of like running around and I can hear calls like, you know, officer down. And then suddenly we were ushered out of the, the control room and then we had to sort of you know, so I think we were waiting in the canteen what stuff was happening. So we knew whatever was happening was really serious. Um, I hadn't had, I hadn't thought about my mum, because my mum my worked nice, my mum worked at Fords. And um, unbeknown to me, the person who I'd been speaking to, who, who put the, the, you know, the idea of policing into my head, he'd obviously seen it on the news that, you know, an officer had been shot, mm. a female officer had been shot. And so he called my house. Wow. Or the landline, because we obviously we didn't have, you know, it was a landline called the, I brought my mum up, who was nice. And 
wanted to find out if I was all right. So my mum had no idea that something was, was going on. So she spent the rest of the day worried. And I think this was, this happened throughout. You know, lots of female officers who were working that day, there were lots of calls and and then, you know, parents were calling up the station to find out what was actually happening. Um, but I was totally oblivious to the fact that someone would call my mum. So by the time I got home, you know, <laughs> my mum was a bit of a state. Yeah, I you know. So, and I thought, oh, my God, I, I hadn't even thought of that. Of course, because it was on my ground. Yeah. You know? And then after that, it was, um, I, I didn't, I didn't personally know Yvonne. I knew my, my ex-husband did because she was um, um, his street duties instructor. Yes. And um, he actually went to the funeral as well, went to a funeral. Um, yeah, it, and it, it, everything sort of changed again because then we had that security patrols. You know, we, we, we had quite a vast list of security patrols that we had, but then that became a fixed post. Yeah. We had quite a actually so you know i spent many a night duty the standing in front of the libyan embassy um and then we had also 61 posts which was the tourist post and then um and then we had lots of other buildings that we had to constantly patrol then we had the bomb car i never ever told my dad that i worked on the bomb car ever because yeah it, it, i don't know it, his poor heart i don't know he couldn't have you know, and, and there were times when I worked on the bomb car. There's one particular officer who was, um, yeah, was they, they referred to him as a bit of a legend. He was he, he would just do silly things like put his his tunic on back to front, and he'd also have a flag hanging at his 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 sort of mouth, and he'd go kick kick parcels and that kind of stuff. But I always remember every time he went to every time he went to a a suspect parcel because we didn't know what was suspect from what wasn't. And then we would every so often, you know, get a call, you know, somebody with an Irish accent and, you know, it was serious. Oh, yeah, it was serious. I, yeah. And each time I would go to it, I'd think in my head, God, this could be my last. But, but we still did it. But we, we were still... still went yeah, it yeah, still... And, and that was the thing. We still... And we would still go to it today. And what people don't realise is that terrorism isn't a new phenomenon. We've been suffering this for, for years and years and years, and it's moved from the RA to Islamic terrorists. I mean, that's, that, they're the facts. But as late as I think it was 96 was probably the last bombing of the RA, and mm. then we move move forward into the stuff that we're, we're going through now. Yeah. What point in your service did you get promoted? I, I seem to take my time. I took my time. Um well, fine enough, I, I didn't actually, when I joined, I, I hadn't set out a plan for myself, but, but I was always quite lucky to have some, you know, pretty good posts because I, I, I really worked, I really worked at each level because I always knew that anything that I did, people would be looking at me more and, and that was always the case. So I actually didn't start thinking about promotion until I had a secondment to the National Criminal Intelligence Service. Um, I was there for nearly six years. And it was whilst I was there, I made a decision. I wasn't going to come back to the Met as I went. And, and I have to say, those six years, I felt that I was working with adults. I felt supported. 
um, you know, the, the job that we were, what was working with them, um, serious organised crime. Um, and I thoroughly thought, I mean, I can almost pinch myself how much I enjoyed that work. And uh, when I said side, I was going to, you know, wanted to do the side, I, I was offered a lot of support. And, and then when I put, you know, and I told everybody that I was studying because I, I made a decision that I wasn't going to make it a hobby because I know there were some people that every year they would take the sergeant's exam and I decided that, that wasn't going to be me. I'm telling everybody I'm doing a sergeant's exam to give myself that extra pressure. <laughs> I do things like that um, so that I would make sure that I would go through it. And so that's what I did. I even took my studying on holiday. People would say, why did I say no, 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 because every day I had to study for two hours. So I had all my books on holiday and then the family would be out you know, on the beach or whatever, I'll be in the hotel room or sort of like on the balcony studying two hours every day, then, yeah, yeah, that's how to do it. That was, that was me. That was me. Yeah. I, I, and, and I didn't find study easy. So it, yeah. if I had had that excuse not to do it, oh, I'm going on holiday for two weeks, yeah. I wouldn't have picked the books up again when I got back. So I had to yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's what I did. And then and I, I passed the first bit. And um, got great support when I was preparing for the um, the part two. Um, past that, and when I had to put the application in to obviously come back to the Met, um, the senior management were brilliant because they had to monitor what we put in it because we couldn't. I couldn't demonstrate what I did. No, because it was you know secret. So they actually went on the panels. They went on the panels. And it basically assured them, yep, you know, we vouch for these people. And, you know, the people that were at ENSYS, you know, who did a good job and passed those, we were really supported. But when I came back to the Met, it was like, there was a lot of changes um, because suddenly we were, you know, we had things like, um, we, were, we had AWARE which was the email system. They didn't have email system. I mean, it moved on technology, but the mindset of people had not moved on. No. And I, I remember the very first day getting back and thinking, oh, Christ almighty. I mean, I hadn't been in the police station for, for nearly six years. I'm now a sergeant. Um, and all I've just felt was people... Obviously, being black female, there were hardly any, you know, black female sergeants. People just want to know, you know, PCs trying to swing their lamp in front of me. I just thought they're so boring. Oh, crikey, all sergeants are getting younger all the time. I remember, I remember saying, well, you shouldn't judge this book by its cover. Because we've <laughs> always thought that I was brand new. You know, throughout my career, I'm brand new. I always made sure that I looked immaculate. My uniform was always immaculate. Um... I said before I got promoted, I, I, I recall one time, um, sort of going back a bit, I, again, because I, I worked on the drugs, I did quite a lot of um, squads after, because Vine Street, started off at Vine Street, had a, you know, not so bad time at Vine Street, had some really good people that I worked with. When I went on to the crime squad at Vine Street, Again, uh, it was a mixture of people that I really got on with, but then I did have some trouble and I knew who it was. There was one particular officer who um, I, I just 
yeah, the way how he wouldn't have known this, but when I got to Vine Street, I was warned off. All female officers at Vine Street were warned off about this particular officer. Right. Um, but I was this officer who I didn't know. She said, um, if you're going to have any things to do with any of the officers, make sure it's not this particular person. Um, so I was aware of this person. Um, anyway, we're on the same crime squad. And I noticed that things were taking place. Things were getting marked on my work. And then one particular time I opened up my my payslip and had the word coon written straight across it. Um, I thought about it for a little while. Oh my God, should I report this? It took about four, three, three, four days to report it. And I did um, because it wasn't the first time this was happening. And I remember some of my colleagues, they were a bit frosty towards me. And I remember saying to one of them, well, I noticed that you guys have been a bit strange towards me. And they said, well, you know, we really think, you know, what you've done, um, reporting stuff, you know, it's a bit of a, you know, you're making a, a mountain out of a molehill. And I said, well, actually, it's not the first time it's happened. To be honest, I shouldn't have had to qualify that anyway. No. Um, ultimately, um, I was told that I had a strange conversation with one of my senior man well, managers. He said, we know you know who it is. As I, as I went, we know you know who it is and we know who it is. Um, and they said, don't worry about it. We will, you know, we are um, going to be tackling that person. And um, he was meant to be going on a CID course. And then they stopped the CID course and sent him to um, Harrow Road Police Station. But at that time, I was actually put an application to go to the, the TSG. And I was the second tranche of the TSG territorial support group because um, the SPG had been um, disbanded. Then they had the TSG. And then I joined it. I was a second chance. So where, where did you go for the TSG? I was um, the old one area, which was Paddington. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I worked on there. But I found, because um, Chris was actually, my, my husband was actually, we weren't married then, but he was on that, on the TSG. And we always were friends. And then when I was put on the TSG, and then from there, then we started um start seeing each other and I do remember my chief inspector saying if only I'd given you your own car park pass then you know because we end up sharing a car together because we lived in the same area working alongside my husband I felt I became a non-person I felt that um yeah everything went through sort of Chris or they were told uh, that, that really 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 got to me you know, it was as if I didn't exist. Yeah, I, 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 I just thought, my God, you know, I, I, was, I was off sick for some time as well. I played netball for the TSG and I snapped my Achilles tendon, oh. so I was off sick. And um, so I, I didn't get one phone call from my line manager whilst I was off sick. The only time he called me was to find out if... My husband had left for work that day. Um, and everything went through Chris. So when I got back, I thought, I don't really want... I didn't feel happy there. I just felt that I totally merged in. I was, I was totally vanilla. No one saw me. And then after that, I got a fantastic opportunity. Went on to the crack squad. I had a great time on the crack squad. Um, by that time, coming at the end of the crack squad, then I was pregnant with my first child. And, and then... 
I, I just remember having an unusual conversation with one of my colleagues there who asked me if I were, what was I going to do when I um, had the baby? And I said, oh, you know, I'm going to come back to work. And this really unusual conversation, he said, oh, it's people like you. That's the reason why the crime rate is so high. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. You know, I'd respected this person until that point. Mm. And I thought, oh, my God. So anyway, um, went on to drug squad after having our child because um, the crack squad has finally disbanded after some time. And, yeah, it was, yeah, so, so that was my sort of journey. So I went from squad to squad. Drug squad, didn't enjoy the drug squad um, because I realised, I found out they thought I was a spy because we were just we were just starting to talk about the Black Police Association because um, in 1990 we had um, the Bristol seminars where there was I think in the 90s we had under 500 officers who were who were Black or Asian in the whole of the police service and a lot of officers of colour were leaving in their droves. So the Met then wanted to send us all away. And it was an order. We didn't have a choice to go to Bristol to find out what's the reason. Initially, I was I was very um, angry about it. I thought, oh, my God, there's a blacklist. That was my thoughts at the time. And then my colleagues were quite upset. Well, why, why are all the black officers being sent away? And then at that point, I thought, well, since you guys don't like it, I think I'm going to embrace it. <laughs> yeah. So I went along and it was like therapy because then we realised that we weren't alone. We were all, you know, we all having the same issues. I mean, I was fortunate. I could share some of that stuff with my husband and a few sort of close people that I knew. So I had sort of like a, a small unofficial network. And um, so I was fortunate in that regard. But to hear from all these other people that were having the same problems. So after that... Well, I mean, a few of us went partying that night and it was great. It was so lovely. And then we started having Bristol seminar um, reunions. And then we started then talking about the Black Police Association. So it's one of the founder members for that. But we were only just starting to talk about it when I actually joined the drug squad. And, um, and I... I joined the drug squad and I found that they weren't welcoming. Um, they would go out on jobs without telling me. I would be talking to them one minute, go into the other room to speak to the typist, come back and they'd all go. They would just leave me. And um, if we were having any um, jobs at all, and then somebody was giving me a bit of paper, they were, oh, it was, it, it was, it was every day there was something. You know, I, I was—I remember being—I was breastfeeding at the time, and it, I really was having a down, you know, a downtime working with you know the, these colleagues. But I had to make the decision after I think about eight months that I, I can't, I cannot mentally work with these people anymore. And so I made a decision: I'm going to go back to uniform. I thought that's it. I want to go back to uniform. Um, it took a few months for them to sort it out, but. By that time, um, I think I'd relaxed. I thought to myself, I know I'm going now. And it was one of the colleagues, he actually looked at me one day. And he said, actually, you're all right, aren't you? I said, what do you mean? 
He said, you're all right. And I said, well, you guys have been treating me awfully since I got here. He said, no, that's, that was only because we thought you were a spy. And I said, what, what, what are you talking about? And then he told me quite openly that before you came, your file was on the governor's desk. So we, they used to go through the governor's desk apparently all the time. So they went this funny desk and saw my file and there must have been a memo about the Black Police Association, but we hadn't even formed. We were just having conversations. So I was like, I couldn't believe. I, I, I was just thought, well, how did I even know? I was just, oh, I, I was just staggered that there was something written. Yeah. So everyone will be watched. I was blown away. Anyway, I'd already made my mind up, went to um, to Holloway um, as uniform, and it was nice. I felt like I was starting again. I was just restarting again, and I didn't mind that. I said to them, look, you know, I've been away from uniform. I want to... Um, you know, re-educate myself and I got myself on a course and it was then I got my driving, a driving course. I had 15 years service when I got my driving course, would you believe? Would you believe that? Wow. Yeah. Uh, um, I didn't get one on the TSG because my inspector told me because Chris had all the courses. So I said to him, are you giving them out per household? <laughs> Unbelievable. I know it was, yeah, 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 it was just ridiculous. Um, but because I was, because I went part time after my second child, and I learned that there were so many officers complained um, about me getting a driving course when I was part time. But my inspector, <coughs> he approached me and he said, um, You haven't applied for the driving course. I said, No. I said, Well, I'm part time. I, I myself was sabotaging myself. I said, Well, I'm part-time. I don't imagine, you know, that, you know, I could apply for it. And he said, well, I'll put your name down for it. He said that your work rate is more than the ones, some of the officers that are um, full-time. Yeah. You know, because I'm very officer as well. And uh, so I got the driving calls. And I couldn't believe the the angst and the hostility uh, regarding me getting his driving calls. Because I happen to know some people in HR and um, they were saying, oh, my God, people are knocking down the door complaining that you've got this course. So I knew I had to pass the course. And I passed the course. So but when I got back, I remember speaking to another officer who got a driving course. And I said, oh, it's quite pressurised. You might want to take some painkillers because I had a headache every day and it was the height of summer. And I remember him saying to me, I'm not a girl, you know, I'm not a silly girl, you know. And I thought, oh, I said, OK, I was just giving you advice. Anyway, he got sent back a week early because um, he failed. I thought, OK. So, <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, I'm trying to help you, even though you were horrible to me. So um, after that, I got a great opportunity to go to the NSIS. And at NSIS, that's when I thought, go to do the sergeants, did that, came back to the Met. And um, my very first day on um, Borough, um, I got my uniform, um, had to get all your brand new uniform, um, you know, new uniform again. Um, and because uh, I had no new uniform, basically, and uh, got my stripes. And then I was given these chevrons for my epilepsy. And I remember thinking, 
they don't look like normal chevrons. So when I got home and I showed um, my husband, I said, are these the same chevrons that you have? He looked at them. They were like small chevrons. And I learned that they were female chevrons. And I thought, what are female chevrons? The epaulets for uniform are all the same size. So what, is the metal too heavy for female shoulders? So I remember speaking to Chris and he said, no, I said, you earn proper stripes. Um, he said, you better ask him for F off stripes. So, I thought, so the next day I went back to work. I said, no, I don't want these. Can I have proper stripes, please? So I've got proper stripes. And I said, I think maybe you should bin these because these are nonsense. And I then got um, my first official day. I was shown around on the borough by another member of staff, member member of police staff who'd only just started, who didn't know the area. And I remember thinking, this is really poor. This is really, really poor. And then I went over to Shoreditch from where I was going to be working. And um, I've made a decision to continue studying for my inspectors. Because I thought, it's in my head, keep studying. Yeah. And I met one of my new colleagues, because they were on a day shift. And he was um, sitting down with his books. And I said, oh, hello. I think I'm, I'm going to be on your team. And without even looking up at me properly, um, I said, oh, you're, so you're studying? And he said, um, yep, I'm studying. And I said, uh, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm studying straight. I'm continuing studying as well. And he said, uh, well, unlike you, I don't have that long to go. And I said, oh, right, OK. I remember this weekend, he was so dismissive of me. Um, I mean, we became really good friends after. I never let him forget that, actually. <laughs> I said, you were so dismissive of me. Um, and he said, because uh, by this time, I think I had like 20 years service. You know, I wasn't rushing, was I? So he said, I don't have that long to go. I said, neither really do I. And uh, so he told me I'm actually had, I think, about 23. And I said, yeah, well, you know, I'm not far behind you. I've got 20. And that's when he looked up at me. And he's almost like, he, oh. But. It must have been about, it was about six months later, because my, my younger sister, my young sister joined, and she was actually at Hackney, so we were both at Hackney at the same time. And she was receiving commendation. And, um, and I remember seeing the borough commander a couple of times walking along the corridor, and he just saw me and smiled. And I must say, it, it really knocked me, so I thought, I'm your new sergeant on your borough, and you've not met me. And, and I thought, well, you know, it's not like you've got loads of us here. And at my sister's commendation ceremony, I did say to her, you know, I've not met the borough commander. And she said, you were kidding me. I said, nope. So she, she said, you know, gov, gov, you know, you've got to meet my sister because she got on quite well with him. And uh, he looked at me. I said, yeah, I'm your only black female sergeant. I said, <laughs> on your back. I did make him feel bad. And he was really embarrassed. Mm. He said, I'm really sorry. I said, yeah. I said, not what I expected, really. So he did make an appointment for me. Because normally, you know, when you're new to a place, you meet the borough commander. That's what I'm used to. Um, and I think he dropped the ball there. I said, you know, it's not like you don't see me. But then I found that's, that's something that was, was happening. Even though I was visible, people didn't see me. You know, a custody sergeant, I was custody one time at Shoreditch and 
there was a well, false medical officer came in, but he wasn't from our borough. So he, I buzzed him into the custody. And as he came in, he looked at me. I was standing up because in the custody at Shoreditch is on the platform. So you're quite high up. And he's come in and he says, oh, you sergeant. So are you jailering today? And I looked at him, I put my hands on my hip and I said, no, I'm sergeanting. And, and that's what people just constantly look at me, not see me. And again, as an inspector, that constantly happened to me. I'd have people walk past me and speak to my sergeants. And one of my sergeants, who was a grey head guy, we were the same age. Well, he would just turn around and said, you just walk past the governor. I'm, I, you know, he always had my back. But he'd always, you know, he could see it. People didn't see me. And I'm sometimes checking, see, I am wearing my uniform, aren't I? I am wearing it, you know. Or people would constantly want to find out what my warrant number was. Because that was an indication of how much service you had. Yeah. And then when they found out my warrant number, they couldn't decipher it because I had a four-digit four warrant number, which is a really old one. And they were like, um, no, we need your warrant number. Um, and I said, I don't know why you need it. Why do you need it? You know? So, yeah, it was it was a constant battle. But I found that I used to share my story quite a lot to my officers. Um, so that they knew you know what you know what it was like and i always say to people when you're treating people would you treat your member of family like this you know and i was dealing with complaints and 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 that's and and i think that is that's what's lost at the moment i don't know because you know i'm i'm passionate about policing but i'm just sad at the moment of where it is how do you feel about stop and search and the, the things that are going on in relation to that? Well, personally, stop and search is a necessary tool. I get it. You do need to have it, but it needs to be done respectfully. It needs to be done. It needs to be intelligence-led. Um, in 2019, my, uh, my youngest son got stopped. He was on his way home from work. Um, it was, it was actually two thousand. Yeah, it was, we were just coming on to things were happening regarding COVID, and so he was coming home from work. He was at Hackney, and they had a um, a metal detector arch. Yeah, another great knife arch. It's a metal detector arch. It detects metal, not specifically knives. Yeah. So anyway, he's gone through, and he's as he's walked through the arch, his bag set it off, and he's turned round to have a look at. If anybody wants to speak to him, he sees about 10 officers there and everybody's talking. No one seems to want to talk to him. So he said he walks. He then thinks, well, they don't want to speak to me. He's walked up onto the platform. And moments later, a couple of officers have come up to him and said, oh, you set the alarm off. We'd like you to come back for search. He said, OK. He said, but, um, you know, I'm going to miss my train now. So, so, so he said, OK, he come, starts coming down the stairs with them. And he's hearing the buzzer constantly go off and people walking through. So we said, do you search everybody that set the alarm off? And they said, no. So we said, what is it about me that you've, you know, you want to search me? And then officer said, because you looked around to see if we were looking at you. And he said, no, I looked around to see if somebody wanted to speak to me. But no one, you know, did. It's, it's natural reaction. You go in the shop, set the alarm off, you turn around, is it me? 
So he goes down and he gives them his rucksack. And as he gives them the rucksack, one of the officers said to him, for my safety, I'm going to handcuff you. And he said, why? And then he said, as he said that, he said, he put his hand out and said, but why? And then his arms are roughed up behind his back and he's handcuffed. And I thought, hold on a moment. So he said he was upset because my mum was really upset. I felt humiliated. Um, so one of the officers, trying, you know, speak to him and say, you know, you know, we're trying to do this. And then they searched him. He had nothing on him, of course. Um, and he came home. He came home. He was so upset. He came home. He said, Mum, your lot. Mm. Considering that both his parents were police officers and his aunt is a serving police officer. You know, um, you know, my oldest son's... Um, one of his godparents is a police officer. Actually, both of them got godparents or police officers. They've been brought out around police and they had to conduct themselves. Um, and I thought, and that's not the first time he's actually been handcuffed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, it, it really upset me. I thought, hold on. It made me feel, you know, I've given over 30 years of my life to this job and people can't treat, you know, can't treat my son with respect. And and I would like to have spoke to us officers. I mean, we did put a complaint in. Um, How did that go? How did the complaint go? Well, first off, it took nine months for them to get back. Mm. Nine months. I could. I mean, if I was, you know, if I could have had a child, I could have another child in nine months. And um, um, and then it was an, it was it was absolutely ridiculous. So we appealed it, and then I went up to Mopac, and I thought Mopac were nonsense. And so it, it's gone nowhere. And then there are things, what happens, you'd lose your energy. Because even Elliot said, my son said, oh, mum, you know, it just yeah, can't be bothered anymore. Because, and that's what happens. A lot of people don't even complain because the process is such that it makes it difficult. And then the length of time that you actually go through. But, and I've spoken to, you know, some of my um, colleagues who are on the TSG, you know, lots of things that hadn't been done you know, on the form, and I thought this is, the form hadn't been completed properly, I don't know where the supervision is, then I'm told, um, then we're told um, that it's, um, it's a, it was lots of probationers, I said, so what is that, it's the excuse, because you've got probationers that, you know, they had 10 uniform officers there, and they had quite a few plainclothes officers there, I, I just think, I mean, when I worked on the TSG, stop and search was our bread and butter, um, and at that time, we weren't handcuffing people to search them. You know what we were using? We were using our mouths. We had a conversation. We didn't have taser. I think we just, I think we just had, we just, we, I think that one, we did have flexi cuffs. But we weren't using them for that. We, we were, I, I find that the more equipment officers have, is the less people are talking. I agree. It's a bigger barrier. Yeah. They all want to walk around looking like Robocop. They don't actually want to talk to anyone. And if I've got 10 people standing around me, I don't need a pair of handcuffs. I've got, yeah. because look, I don't know you. I know Chris, mm. but you're respectful people. And I would, it doesn't always follow. I get it. But I would expect that your children will probably be respectful as well. So they would mm. deal with the situation in the appropriate way. I mean, we can't lose sight of the fact that black kids are killing black kids. There is no, there is no, absolutely no doubt about that at all. The higher percentage of murders that have taken place in the capital have been black kids killing black kids. But 
it's about attitude of the person that you are stopping because we can all up the ante, but if someone stops and they're polite and they, they comply with everything that you want them to do, can I look in your bag? Yes, you can, help yourself. There's nowhere for them to go. They don't need to handcuff anyone. They don't yeah. need to be rude. They just need to do their job and do it properly. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly, exactly. I, I Another thing, I, I do, when I sometimes hear, you know, sort of black on black crime, sometimes it does not me sometimes. I think myself, yeah, it is. there is a problem. Absolutely, we get that. If you go up other places like Liverpool, Manchester, when they have, like, gangbangs. Yes. And, and then when if it's a white person killing someone, it's not white and white crime, it's gang No, crime. I agree. So, so, so sometimes I do think that we are unnecessarily targeted yeah there is an issue and i'm not silly but it it just makes it sound that much worse murder is murder murder is i absolutely agree and if it was in newcastle i wouldn't i wouldn't we wouldn't even use that as a phrase yeah but the issues that are happening in southeast london are well documented and as as a parent do you know what? If my son got stopped 20 times in a week and people were polite to him, it, mm. if it meant that, one, he wasn't going to get into trouble with the police yeah. or be a victim of crime, because mm-hmm. if they're treating everybody in the same way, yeah. I, wouldn't have a, I wouldn't have an overall problem with it. Yeah. It's when there's a disproportionate amount of pressure placed on one particular area. Mm. And, and like I say, it's about keeping kids safe. I, I wouldn't want anybody's son locked up for murder. Yeah, or daughter comes to that, and I certainly, having worked on major investigations and attended mortuaries more times than I care to think of, Mm. to go around and tell a parent that their son or daughter has been stabbed or killed, full stop, is heartbreaking because you know that the the last word that that parent may have had with their child Mm -hmm. was a bad one. They might have been arguing in that morning. But the fact is that their their son or daughter has been killed. So I, I understand what you're saying, but it's a very mm. it's a very difficult. Certainly in the in the capital at the moment, mm. um, it's a very difficult situation. No, no, no. It is. It is. Um, of course, I, I've had to tell um, um, a mother that her son had been um, um, murdered, and you know, I, I think about it a lot. Actually, you know, it was um, it was not the circumstance I would have liked to have done it. I get to the scene and I think what was what was really quite awful about this whole situation is getting up into the balcony. As, well, as I arrived on the scene and with my sergeant, we arrive on the scene and the car pulls up with um, five women that who will jump out. And, and I could see they're hysterical and I'm thinking, oh my God, they are obviously connected to what I'm going to be seeing. So I'm having to find officers to chaperone this these women, keep them here because I I don't know who the victim is yet, but they've obviously got some information. Because um, what had happened is um, there was this uh, there, there was being some um, a young man had had his phone stolen, and uh, he found out who it was. He knew who it was, and he had his older brother come along with him to get the phone back, and he'd made arrangements to get a phone back. So they're on this balcony and the guy was meant to give the phone back. He doesn't. He comes out and stabs the older brother. Terrible. And runs off. And uh, and then the younger brother calls up mum. So mum gets the information mm. as her son has been stabbed. 
So mum and her sisters arrived. So having to do with that. And so I just got my officers, please, we've got to keep them here, put them in the van and just, just keep them all together. And so I've gone up and as I've gone up onto the balcony, what was so um, funny about this whole thing, there were flowers only about five feet away from a murder that had taken place about three weeks before. And that same balcony where the Hems team had cracked this young man's chest open, they were massaging his heart. And also, you know when that's Last happening, result. you're just thinking. You know, yeah. So, um, so I'm standing there and I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, we watch it. And then the poor, the younger brother is just traumatised and obviously, you know, he's, he's right there, you know, watching his brother's life sort of ebb away. And then moments later, they've Both, called it yeah. that, you know, he's died. So obviously we've had to sort of like look after the, the him. And I remember going downstairs and having to have radio silence, speaking to the CID and sort of letting them know that, you know, he's, um, you know, they've called it, he's died. And uh, so I'm speaking to the CID and saying, OK, well, mum needs to be told. And then they were saying, yeah, yeah, we'll do it. Because I was speaking to the DI and uh, 10 minutes have gone past. And I said, the mum needs to be told because I'm making sure all my officers put the scene. We've got the murder team coming down and everything. And the CID controlling the, you know, making sure that certain things have been done. So I'm at 15 minutes later. <laughs> to the, the CDI, um, Mum needs to be told. Because, yeah, yeah, I'm going to tell her, I'm going to tell her. So I'm thinking, we cannot, because I'm suddenly, I'm yeah. I've got parent mode on. I cannot, I can't imagine, I, I just thought, I cannot ever imagine being, knowing that the mum is there, she is there on the scene, and we're going to tell her in the next hour that has on the side. I'm thinking, no. that cannot happen. So I remember getting a little bit shirty with him. I said, you're going to tell her now? And he said, and he was busy, and I know it. We have to do the policing. We have to do the policing. We've got to remember there's a human there. And I said, I'm going to do it, okay? I'm doing it. I'm doing it now. So I've gone over. I remember thinking, I've gone over to, to the mum and all her sisters, and they're all there. And they're, you know, they're hysterical. They're absolutely hysterical. And 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 at that moment, I'm thinking, mm. what actually am I going to say? You know? What words am I going to say? And all I can remember thinking is holding her hands because I just held both of her hands and I didn't even know her name. I didn't even know the, the victim's name, but I know, but the way how she is, yeah, yeah. she is the mum, you know, it's this amazing lack of information, but you just know that intuition. And um, all I can say to her, and she said, tell me, is he dead? No, he's not. And she was in and out, in and out. And then I said, mum, I'm so sorry. Yeah. All I can say, mum, I am so sorry. And then they all dropped down on the ground like skills. I remember thinking, mm. it was absolutely heartbreaking. And I remember saying to myself, I've just given this woman the worst yep. news of her life. And I cannot stay with her. Yep. Because and I it's no good saying, oh, is, is there someone who can make you a cup of tea? That isn't gonna, that's not going to wash. No. The fact is that the life of her child has been taken. And I, I still think about those no. those breaking those agonies and there's no what you can't sugarcoat it you can and but, but you see this is this is why i get so angry about the the naysayers around the police the police aren't perfect i know they're not perfect but but they do jobs that 
Some people don't even realise. They don't realise that today someone will be knocking on a door saying, look, I'm really sorry. Somewhere in the country, irrespective of where it is, yeah. someone in the country will be knocking on the door saying, look, I'm really sorry, your husband's not your husband's not coming home. Yeah. He's been killed in a road collision. Your son's not coming home. Your daughter's not coming home. They've been yeah. murdered at school. That's going to happen somewhere today, and, and, and the public don't get it. Yeah. I know, like I say, I know the police isn't yeah. perfect. What would you do different? I mean, the the Metropolitan Police, they are getting so much uh, criticism around their misogyny, around racism. How would how would you change it if if you were in power today? How would you change it? Well, there's a lot of talk about obviously the Casey report, isn't it? A lot of and the word institutional racism. Um, and my personal view, I think the commissioner has missed Mr. Trick there. Well, um, because the communities aren't going to, well, the black communities specifically, aren't going to sort of take heed of what he said until he admits, you know, that it is introducing racism. Because Casey, in her report, she has four tests. And, you know, that that's her threshold. And if if we haven't met those four tests, that means that we are. And it doesn't mean that all officers are it's institutionally, all officers are racist, but it's the institution. But there are organisations out there who are willing and who want to help, but they want to hear the commissioner admit that, then we can get the work done. If you've got, if you're going to get the terrible diagnosis of cancer, the doctor's not no, the course. same, sorry, you've got a headache. They're going to tell you you've got cancer. You, in order to really get to the roots of the problem, you have to identify what the problem is. And, and that is my personal view. And I know a lot of people are going to say, oh, no, that is not the case. You know, I worked in policing for all those years. And from what I'm hearing, speaking to officers now, there are still those issues. It is um, institutionally racist, um, misogynistic and homophobic. But we need to admit it before we can start getting the work done. Um, yeah, there needs to be probably more highlight of good stories as well, because the police do yeah. a lot of great things. At the moment, yes, it is highlighted by the absolutely awful things. I mean, I'm still staggered when I think about um, oh, I am. Cousins absolutely. in Carrick. I, yeah, I just think, oh, my God. But the thing is, I always think it's always been like that hypocritical view, because you, you've, you, police has always said, the black community, um, they close ranks and they don't want to say when someone's having, if there's been a murder, no one wants to talk. But policing is exactly the same because people like Carrick and Cousins, people knew what they were. People knew that what you, you've got a nickname for the racist. Rapist. I'm sorry, the, yeah. um, um, the rapist. And, you know, so there was an undercurrent of people who knew this was going on. I think at the moment, there has been, there was definitely a lack of supervision. Um, I think there's been a whole drop in standards. Um, because I, there's one, because when you, to me, if, and I know some people, I've, I've had this conversation with some people, when you start losing standards of even to simple things of how people look, how people dress in uniform, it, it's like a slow erosion of, of the high standards that they had. And and then there was this lack of people just not sort of caring, and so that slips, and something else slips, 
and then you know you get more complaints and then so it's it's slowly eroding and then you got the uniform carriers some people just want to say that they're police officers they carry the uniform but they're not doing the job they don't take the job that seriously and it is a serious it's a serious occupation if you do something wrong or, or, do, or don't do your job properly mm. somebody could die or you know somebody could lose uh, you know th their whole livelihood or if you've done your job properly people get the ache with me because i still believe that your shoes should be clean that you should look presentable you shouldn't have and I know there'll be people listening to this who'll cut me down, you know, tattoos all up the backs of their hands yeah. and, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. They shouldn't have their hair in a ponytail when they're wearing their beat Bobby's hat. That's not what it's about. I mean, I've got a beard now. It's only because I haven't got any hair on my head. But but the fact is I never grew a beard whilst I was on duty because that's how it, how it was. And, and I get yeah. it that the world's changed and it's evolving, but it's not evolving for the better. Yeah. The, the, the standard is the standard and... and the police should have a standard above. It shouldn't be below. When I went to Southwark um, as an inspector, and I think it starts from up there, I went to Southwark and I remember having a conversation with my new chief inspector. And we sat there and he said to me, first thing he said to me was, oh, I think you find this is a very busy borough. And I said, yeah, I know. I've just come from Hackney. I just thought to myself, I, I, I didn't like the way he spoke to me. So I thought, yeah, what? I wasn't just born. And then he said, you know, we're that busy here. We don't worry about things like ties and officers wearing hats. And I said, but I do. I do. And I know, and I've been with my, uh, ex my um, ex colleagues here that they would know I was a stickler for you had to wear your tie, you had to wear your hat. And I did have a challenge with some of the officers. And I remember saying one time, look, I'm not asking you to wear a clown's uniform. I'm asking yeah. you to wear your uniform properly. And I set the standard. But the one particular day, I must say, I, I, I you know, I was, I did get the <laughs> ask about this. Um, we had a shooting, some, so a couple of my officers got shot at and then the person was holed up in a house. So we had the whole place crime scene and everything. So we had the World News brother there, had the whole scene um, cordoned off. And one of my sergeants um, was on a, one, one of the cordon bits. And I remember saying, where is your hat? He said, oh, sorry, mum, sorry. Um, I said, I jumped out and then the car drove off. And and I really, it was one, of, you, you know when you get some people, that even if they're in a uniform, they just look scruffy. You're just one of those people, you just look scruffy. So... And, I, and he knew I wasn't happy. I said, you know, if you can get that car to come back at some point, you need your hat. So he, later on, he tells me that there was an, an old, this elderly gentleman by the cordon. And as I walked past, this elderly gentleman has looked at me and he said to my, said to my sergeant, he said, oh, is that your inspector? And my officer said, yes. He said, ah, no wonder. No wonder stands as a job. Look at you. And he was, and that, when he told me, he annoyed me. So I said, so that bloke has judged me yeah. by you, but he doesn't know me. He had no idea. So somebody's looked at, oh, you know, and I, I can see he's like, oh, you know, black female sergeant, got an inspector, hasn't got a clue. And I thought, Couldn't be further from the truth. What, 
what does the future look like now for for you, for Jenny? What 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 are you doing now, and and how has life progressed since you since you retired? Right. Well, um, when I retired, I, I thought I was going to do well. Well, I thought I could um, step away from policing, um, you know, do something totally different. So this the first two years, I I basically took off I didn't I just wanted to rest and then my, my actually my um, grandson was born my oldest son and um, his partner they, they got pregnant a little bit young um, but my grandson was born and he was born with a kidney defect so I spent those the first two years supporting him going to every hospital appointment that they had and then when my grandson was three he had a transplant my son donated wow and one needs to um his son my grandson so i just needed to be there yeah for everything then after that i thought i needed to do something and i thought oh um i started working for my local authority and in some degree it was like joining the police again oh god jesus it was like oh my god so i stayed there for about 18 months and I thought, no, I'm not reinventing the wheel. I, I really thought it was, I was entering a well old machine and it was not. And I thought, no, I'm too old. Well, I'm not old, but I just thought, I'm not starting again, you know, doing an organisation. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, really. And I remember putting out a post on on, on Instagram, sort of on um, LinkedIn. And, uh, and then I got this great opportunity to um, be an associate assessor for um, um, this great company, which I'm still doing. So I was one of the original staff as, it, as the actual company was starting. And I thought, actually, this is what I want to do. I want to be still part of helping the policing. And then I started to become a school governor because, I, I don't know, I, I really want to be useful and want to be sort of serving and, and you know, giving that input. But... Uh, apart from that, I, I also um, had managed to inject myself into quite a few meetings in the Met. I work alongside them, the, the, the Met in some of their meetings um, as um, as an outsider, as an outsider, as a member of the community. But because I find that, and I, think, I, I, I imagine this would be for quite a lot of policing, that the organisation memory is very short. So I like to hear when people are coming up with all these different initiatives. I know we'll see the case report talking about initiative writers. Everybody wants to have their own legacy. So when I hear that the Met is coming up with another legacy, I'm that person that says, hmm, didn't we have that in 1990, such and such? What's different? You know, what's different? And, you know, prove to me how this is actually going to last. You know, because people come... They come with initiative, they get promoted and they go. There's never any longevity. There's no continuity of stuff. So, so I, I like to be in those spaces. But ultimately, I want to see that, you know, policing, you know, specifically because that's where I've come from, that can once again be that great organisation that people once looked up to it to be. I mean, it had its faults. It had many faults. And it's nice to know that, and I know we've had all these different reports, the Scarman report, the McPherson report, um, the Casey report, 
I think it's only now since the Casey report that certain things, certain things have been believed because people have been saying they've been issues for years and people have never been believed or it's just been sort of sidelined. But it's come to that point now that it's become so toxic in certain areas. It's like, if we don't sort it out now, what is actually going to happen? I agree. And, and we need the police. Oh. We need to have police. Oh my god! If we don't, we'll, it's, we'll, it'll be the purge. It, you know, there'll be yeah. there'll be people going around, yeah, doing what they it'll want. It'll be chaos. Utter chaos. So, yes. Yeah, so, so that's where, you know, I, I see myself. I'm, I want to be assisting people from, you know, because we need people from diverse backgrounds to join, and we need good people from diverse backgrounds. We need good people all round. We need to have proper supervision, um, and we need people to really. Have an understanding of why why it was that they joined for the right reasons yeah. for the right reasons not to have power yeah and lord over people I, going back to casey i mean we're going to wrap this up shortly but going back to casey one of the big things that came out is around the community mm-hmm. and for me community policing changed in 1994 when we sold all the police houses and in subsequent years where we've closed the police stations down because whether people liked or trusted the police or not, mm-hmm. it didn't matter because they were, mm-hmm. but they were still visible. But when you, yeah. when you sell off the stock, you will never replace it. And it gives people to withdraw from the front line and not be visible to the people that they are serving. And that's like I say, I know I sound like, I sound like my dad. I sound like a dinosaur, but they're the facts. You know, I'm passionate <laughs> about police and I know that you are. We're not going to agree on everything. We're going to have different views, but as, yeah. long, as long as we can discuss them as adults and not get all petulant about it. But yeah. but what we do agree on is that the community is the forefront of what the police service do, and they should be serving the community in the in the correct and proper way, with the correct absolutely. and proper staff. No, absolutely. I mean, even my local station, I heard when it was closed, I thought, what? What? My? I couldn't believe it. I mean, I think now it's reopened to a degree, but I really wouldn't know where you go to report something nowadays. Well, they don't um, want you to report it, do they? Because it, it suppresses the figures. I, I know. That's I another know. story. That, no, seriously, that is a whole other story. Absolutely. But before we go any further, I use this with everybody, but have you got anything you'd like to add or to correct in relation to the way that we've conducted this interview today and the statement that you've made? <laughs> No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really, um, you know, I've really enjoyed the, the, our, our conversation and our sort of, uh, you know, our interaction. Yeah, it'd be nice that, you know, um, I'm currently writing a book at the moment. Oh, well, when and, you do, let me, let me know. Yeah, so yeah, and, and I'll, I'll let you know about that. And I know people get really worried. I think, oh God, another officer's writing a book. But it comes from a place of knowing where we were and then basically how, how I navigated it. Yeah. And, you know, because, yeah, I think I'm one of those people, I'm most definitely a cup half full. I'm, I'm, you know, I've always been, if it wasn't for me having positivity around or me and having those possibilities in, in my head, um, then I might have left ages ago, but that, that's never come into my head. No, no, good. Thank you so <laughs> yes, much for your time. <laughs> and I will speak to you when you're older. Oh, right. yeah. Take care. God bless. Okay, you take care. Cheers, then. Bye bye. Bye bye bye.